You are listening to The Big Tent here at Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM Caldwell, Boise. Also, it's Valentine's Day. Yay. Happy Valentine's <laughs> Day. I, I've been reminding of you two of this for weeks, so hopefully you're not surprised. But it's not till tomorrow, right? It's today. <laughs> it goes until midnight, okay, if that makes good, you feel any better. Good. Listen, I did all my shopping uh, yesterday, so I'm, I'm prepared. Okay, that's good to hear. I still have until midnight, so oh. I'm, I'm good. Well, you got plenty of time. <laughs> if you've been uh, listening to any other radio stations, you know, too, that this is the one-year anniversary of the Parkland shooting. So we're just sending our, I don't know, love, good feelings to those folks who are still recovering from that. But today on The Big Tent, we are going to be talking about the Green New Deal. So what is your understanding of what this uh, thing is? This is a proposal from the Democrats. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, representative from New York, has her name attached to it. What is in this thing? Well, my understanding is it's not really even a thing yet in terms of a fully formed uh, policy proposal. It's more of a of a general orientation, an idea that we ought to get off uh, fossil fuels and that there's a an economic benefit to doing so. So the sort of historic trade-off between the economy and the environment is is one that I think the the more progressive left in the in the in the Congress is trying to to, to burst that perspective, and argue that a, a substantial government investment in in clean green technology will not only in, uh, combat climate change but would also lead to uh, economic prosperity, create new jobs, and uh, usher the United States into the 21st century. So that sounds to me like sort of the a platform that those on the left would be really comfortable with. Um, but I think things have been a little bit more muddied because of a position paper that did get released early on by AOC's office and was later removed from her website. And that sort of laying out that position paper on the Green New Deal also had a lot of what some on the right are calling socialist proposals for things like uh, basic income and medic. Medicare for all or health health care for all um, and then they removed it so this was so there, there are a number of different controversies that have come out of this and it's not clear yet what is encompassed by this notion of a green new deal it it, it polled very well um, because again there was some early uh, uh, politicking around this notion of a green new deal but not a lot of clarity in terms of what it actually means and what sort of investments we're talking about uh, one of the other things that got some attention was a, a focus on high-speed rail and the the position paper said, you know, high-speed rail could be an alternative to air transportation and then immediately garnered a lot of, of uh, negative reaction among those who thought that perhaps the progressives in the Congress were arguing to stop flights. And I think, I think Liz Cheney was on the record as saying, sorry, Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, right. right. You're not going to be included in this. Yeah, yeah and, and 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 more recently in California, the the new governor Gavin Newsom uh, announced that he was putting a halt to the high speed rail proposal, so that it would. Uh, he actually used the phrase "a train to nowhere," which is probably not the best um, uh, way of framing what is now being associated with the Green New Deal, right? So the Democrats mm -hmm. nationally have talked about the need to promote high speed rail. The new Democratic governor of California has said that the high speed rail plan there that was designed to get people from San Francisco to Los Angeles and back will no, will, will no longer be. It'll get people maybe a third of that route in the place that's the least populated. And so he 
in fact, dubbed it a train to nowhere. And so in part of this national discourse around what might be a Green New Deal is this question about, well, why is the probably most environmentally conscious, most progressive state abandoning high-speed rail at the same time the Democrats in Congress are saying this is where we should be making investments? But this is why I think it's interesting to maybe like uh, take a step back and pay attention not just sort of to the details as they're being fleshed out on the political stage right now, because it does seem the three of us study to some degree the policy process um, as well as politics. And it does seem that um, for the Dems right now, this is almost more of a... um, Oh, gosh, what do I want to say? They're sort of figuring out what the platform might be as opposed to haggling over specific policies yet at this point. But the Republicans um, in response are choosing to pick out particular pieces of it. And in fact, Mitch McConnell is going to force a vote or is threatening to force a vote sort of to get particular people on the left on the record on it. So um, I think the Dems feel like they're sort of mixing things around in the policy soup, as we might say, mm-hmm. and the Republicans are picking various morsels out and asking Dems to taste them. <laughs> well, that's exactly how I read this, right, was just a list of talking points for 2020 presidential candidates. Uh, and I was actually, uh, I guess, disappointed to a certain extent because I expected a little bit more depth in policy because when it comes to things like climate change and the environment, I mean, the devil's in the details. I mean, I think we can all agree, and I mean, it's been a core American value for the last half a century that we don't want polluted air or water. We don't want, you know, the environment to kill us. Uh, The problem has always come with, like, how do we make that happen? Uh, And so, like, reading through this, I was like, oh, these look like good ideas. Like, oh, employment, stopping climate change, all that kind of stuff. It's like, how do we get that done, though? Um, And so I was kind of disappointed in reading this, but I also understand, like, why essentially every Democratic presidential candidate who's announced so far has signed on with it right because it is a list of left-wing or liberal policy mm-hmm. positions like and i don't understand like, i would be surprised i'm actually more surprised by the people that haven't signed on to it right because i don't think you're going to be able to run effectively in the democratic primaries without signing on and agreeing to this I mean, it does seem to me that there are there's a rhetorical function here as well. Like, uh, it's so interesting to me that we're very early in the 2020 sort of presidential race and that the issue that is at the fore is climate change. I mean, that is a totally unexpected thing. Those of us who have been following climate politics have, I think, felt pretty depressed the last few years. At the end of the Obama administration, we had entered into the Paris Climate Agreement and there was the Clean Power Plan and all of that was very very quickly reversed or threatened to be reversed, at least under the Trump administration. And now to see climate be the number one issue, I think, is is really fascinating. Well, I think you have these 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 newly elected Democrats who obviously the Dems picked up 40 seats in the in the House election in 2028, 2018 and are looking at 2020 and Many of those candidates won in opposition to the Trump administration's record on the environment and climate change, and so came out of that emboldened and so effectively challenged uh, Speaker Pelosi and others in the leadership to say it's time to embrace this notion of a Green New Deal that we ran on in 2018 and got some energy. And, and again, the most diverse class of, of freshman members in, in U.S. history. Um, and so... But, it, but it's as you noted, it's not a well-developed series of, of policy prescriptions. It's a set of ideas and sort of an organizing principle, if anything. And so I think came in energized around this organizing principle. And I think Republicans have discovered that it's as, as relevant an organizing principle for Republicans in 2020 as it is for Democrats. And so I'm not sure that it that the uh, you know the, the claiming it's all socialism is as powerful an argument as it was, say, in 1988. 
but that's certainly been the president's response is that this is a, a socialist platform. Mm-hmm. Um, frankly, I don't think there's enough detail in it to say what it is in terms of whether it's socialist or not. But in any case, um, both sides have already realized that there are elements of this philosophical argument that are winning issues for them. And so as a result, there's a lot of contention over something that is really just about, in my view, Democrats telling other Democrats, you're not going to lose elections basing, based on tackling climate change. And there is a way of changing the debate around sort of energy versus, or energy and environment versus the economy that we should be taking positions on within the Democratic Party. But it's really happened in this very heightened political environment. Yeah, that reminds me of a piece that uh, communication scholar Matt Nisbet published, I think, last week in Scientific American. And he's really concerned about the Green New Deal, even though he's somebody who uh, believes that climate change is caused by human activity and would like to see climate policies move forward. He's worried that the Dems are sort of shooting themselves in the foot by linking climate policies to some of these more, quote unquote, socialist policies, because it's going to continue the sort of polarization around climate change that we've seen. And he's he argues it's a missed opportunity because really for the first time in recent memory, polling is showing that uh, 65% of Americans believe climate change is happening and that it's caused by human activity and want something done about it. So that's a pretty remarkable shift um, compared with uh, polling before that. So it'll be interesting to see sort of how that that polarization shakes out. One part of the uh, AOC proposal that got prematurely posted had to do with nuclear power. And when we come back from the break, we're going to talk a little bit about nuclear power in the U.S. um, and what's next for nuclear power. So uh, stay tuned. We will be right back. I am your host, Jen Schneider, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Luke Fowler and Corey Cook. I forgot to introduce you last time. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, we're just the random voices. <laughs> There's just people here <laughs> in the studio doing the show with me. Uh, anyway, today we're talking about the Green New Deal. And if you've been following the news on that, you saw that, uh, again, Junior Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez got in some heat for posting a sort of premature policy white paper proposal on her website about the Green New Deal. It was subsequently pulled, but thanks to the Wayback Machine, it was found by some you know, internet sleuth and has been uh, subject to a lot of critique. One thing that was interesting in that early proposal was that um, it argued that nuclear power would be phased out in the U.S. Um, that didn't make it into the new proposal, the official proposal, but I think that points to a really interesting fault line in climate policy and energy for those on the left, which is that uh, the left has historically been anti-nuclear in the U.S. Um, really ever since the uh, 70s, uh, maybe even before that. And yet nuclear power provides 19% of our electricity in the United States. It's going to be really hard to totally decarbonize if we get rid of nuclear altogether. So what are you thinking when you hear about sort of um, these debates over nuclear power? Uh, you know, uh, the nimbyism is what always comes to mind, right? It's, it's nuclear power sounds like a great idea as long as it's not anywhere around me. 
Um, like you feel that way personally, or you think Dems feel that way, or uh, or humans feel that? I way? think humans feel that way, right? Mm. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's really a lack of understanding um, uh, of what nuclear power and the safety measures that are are in place, right? But I think for you know a lot of people that remember things like Three Mile Island and Chernobyl, or just Fukushima, which oh, happened right. in 2011. Yeah. yeah, and I mean some of these like large and and so they associate these things with like oh wait, there's a disaster looming, right? The whole China Central thing. Um, and so I think everybody's like, oh, yeah, this sounds like a great idea, as long as we do it somewhere far away from me. Um, and then, you know, the other part of it's the waste, right? Um, Yucca Mountain and all these other places. Like, what do we do with the waste of it? So I, I don't... That's the big issue in Idaho is the, is the storage and the waste. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so... Uh, I think it's just a lack of really understanding it and engaging because nuclear power is more complicated than any other power source that we have, um, both on the short term and the long term. And so, uh, I mean, I think I just connect this with, you know, not really understanding the technical merits and some of the issues that surround all of this. I mean, I um, agree to that to some extent. I've, I've taught a course called Nuclear Power and Public Policy for years and work with a lot of nuclear scientists and engineers who argued exactly that. Like, if only the public understood all of the safety features of nuclear power plants, they would not fear it, was the argument. And they would also point to all of the deaths that are caused by coal-fired power plants, for example, like by asthma, um, because of the fine particulates that coal, coal plants put out. Um, I will say that I felt pretty comfortable with that until Fukushima mm -hmm. happened and felt a lot of my confidence um, shook after that. And I, I know there were not a lot of deaths. Um, there were no deaths other than worker deaths that we can trace to that accident. And yet I think there's been a lot of ecological fallout. There's a lot of public trust that has been sacrificed as a result of how that accident was happened. And although we have really good safety regimes in the United States, I also think we've got plenty of hubris right. <laughs> when it comes to nuclear power. And that worries me a little bit. Well, if you're going to talk about safety regimes, right, we've got to talk about things like the Macondo blowout um, and oil drilling, yeah. uh, where it was safety inspections weren't getting done. Uh, so I'll say, like, I don't have a lot of confidence in the safety regimes or the bureaucracy of the the America or in America. The bureaucracy um, of the America. Yes, that's what uh, that, that should be our new promo for the show. We're going to talk about the bureaucracy of America. Uh, but so I don't have a lot of confidence in it. But I will say, like, there are trade offs here. Right. Um, when we're going to talk about are you willing to spend more on energy? Are you willing to deal with the economic, uh, the, the loss of jobs? Are you willing to deal with the other environmental consequences? I think when you look at all those trade-offs, nuclear makes sense. Like It it doesn't make sense in terms of costs, though, right now. Yeah. I mean, there's no way it can remotely be competitive with natural gas. It's almost three times as expensive for new nuclear power plant builds. And those who are opposed to nuclear power because of things like safety are also opposed to things like oil and gas exploration mm -hmm. because of safety. Well, and so if we get rid of fossil fuels, we get rid of nuclear, uh, how do we power things? I mean, that, that yeah. would be the big question out there, right? That is the question, absolutely. Right? So, yep. I mean, I, I see all this as not like when you think holistically around it, like how do you really mitigate all these problems? And I, I don't think there's really a way. And so we just have to do the best we can. And I think nuclear is a, a part of that mix. Well, and I'm guessing maybe uh, two of our three listeners are yelling at the radio right now and saying, just do it with renewables. Um, and certainly renewables have had a pretty tremendous resurgence thanks to the original Green New Deal, which appeared in the stimulus package. Mm -hmm. well, we can uh, look back at that where there was a lot of funding for uh, the development of renewable energy in the in the US um, but still they're only six to seven percent of our total electricity supply anyway and smaller on the transportation side 
So still a very huge lift to displace things like coal, which is still around 30%, natural gas is around 30%, and nuclear around 20%. So we have a long way to go to displace those. And engineers, including Stephen Chu, who's a former Secretary of Energy, would say, you can't do it totally with renewables. So I think this is what Dems are going to have to face when they set these sort of 100% renewables targets. Well, I think there's a, and again, I, I come from Mississippi, and I, I saw witness something very interesting going on there. Is uh, Phil Bryant? I remember his first State of the State address, and I'm not particularly a big fan of Phil Bryant. Um, he is not uh, a pretty, a very charismatic re- Republican governor of any state. Um, and uh, the the running joke was when he was state auditor was he only made it a speech when he uh, was running for something. And I think that pretty much carries through. Uh, but he his first day of state of union, he talked a lot about green collar jobs. And he did not frame any of the renewable stuff in terms of environmental protection or anything else. It was all about creating high paying jobs. Yeah. Um, and Mississippi State has an amazing agricultural school, um, an amazing forestry school. So there's all this money pouring into the state to deal with these type of things. And so and going back to something we talked about in the the part of this is tying environmental thing to socialist causes and some of the left-wing causes. I mean, I think there's a really strong economic development argument to be made yes. that plays on the right that I think has been missed. And me and Jen have talked about this multiple times, which is to say, if you want conservatives to buy in renewable energy, don't talk about environmental protection and all these other things. Talk about jobs. Talk about what it will do for their communities. Talk about the fact that we won't be importing things from other countries, but we'll be producing energy down the road from you. Those are the type of things that will actually play in rural communities which, I mean, is exactly who needs to get on board to make this happen. Well, and that's precisely what the imagery of the Green New Deal suggests, right? That it is about economic growth and economic development and and, and notion of these green-collar jobs being uh, living wage jobs, right? And so there's a notion of of economic growth that is uh, broad, broad, broadly shared prosperity along with these environmental investments that I think is invoked by the Green New Deal that now is... Well, you're saying people they, they can't fly in airplanes anymore, and you're saying that there's a there's a guaranteed living living wage, and that and that this also involves not a public option of Medicaid expansion, but Medicare for all, and and so that's the I think the the genie that got out of the bottle was I think a notion around uh, infrastructure investment, what the president talks a lot about, the Democrats should talk about as well as it relates to these green collar jobs and environmental infrastructure investments that are renewable and now we're instead debating medicare for all and um and that's nisbet's point like do you tangle these things up with one another and i think those on the far left want them tangled for strategic reasons but he's worried it's going to sink sink the whole boat well it's really clearly dividing the democratic caucus in the house and and we're only uh not even 100 days in to the the second pelosi speakership and she's already got to try to wrangle these new freshman democrats who are all over the place on this issue and it threatens to divide the will either unite the caucus and be the predominant issue in the 2020 election, or it will divide the caucus and result, frankly, in the Republicans winning control back at the House. I mean, the other thing we've seen the last 15 or 20 years is really a partisan partisanizing (laughs) of of particular energy sources. So, you know, supporting renewables 
is a democratic platform and supporting fossil fuels like coal, particularly in the East and in the South, that is a Republican value. And so it will be interesting to see if they are able to, if the Dems in particular are able to refashion things so that they can um, move people in um, the base on the right towards supporting some of these well, the uh, things as you suggest. Well, the challenge is all about campaign donors and, and major industry backers mm-hmm. of the two major parties. And so, again, I think the, the opportunity for Democrats is that, is that they can get some traction on this issue. They not only have an opportunity to gain popular support, they also have an, an opportunity to really fracture um, the industry backing of the two-party system in a way that's in their favor. And if they can't, ultimately this becomes a... Uh, a real problem for Democrats moving forward because they can't organize themselves around what it means to respond to climate change. Yeah, and that, that's what I think your point was, Luke, and probably the point of Mike Pesca, too, who's writing for The Gist, saying, let's get some specific policies on the table so we can actually uh, talk about things in a very real way. Well, speaking about talking about things in a very real way, when we uh, come back. That was an incredible segment. Thank you so much. That's why I'm here. Uh, When we come back from the break, we're going to talk about what's happening with uh, climate change policy or climate focused policies at the local and state level, which is where uh, we've seen most of the action in the last few years. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Or the radio, or the hi-fi, or just a tingling feeling you get every time we come near. KRBX. And we're back. You're listening to The Big Tent. I'm your host, Jen Schneider, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Corey Cook and Luke Fowler. We're uh, professors in the School of Public Service at Boise State. Uh, here talking about climate politics and climate policy this week. We've been talking about the Green New Deal, which is a suite of semi-formed proposals <laughs> from the left, trying to address what some consider sort of the most uh, significant existential threat of, of our lifetimes, climate change. Um, we're going to shift now from talking about what's happening at the federal level to talking about what's happening at the state and local level. Um, those who've been uh, following climate politics for a while have noted that things like the Clean Power Plan, which was an effort on the part of Obama's uh, Environmental Protection Agency to regulate carbon at power plants in particular, has sort of uh, fallen apart or is being challenged by the Trump administration. At the same time, though, we've seen a lot of action at the uh, state level. And Luke, you've made the argument that actually most of our bureaucracy and decision making and sort of action in the United States often happens at the state and local level. And so can you talk a little bit about what you see in your research around environmental policy and climate? Well, oh, would you correct correct how I frame that? Everybody better strap in because it's oh. <laughs> right, I'm, I'm terrified now. <laughs> yes, you should be. All right, get ready for an hour long lecture on the bureaucracy. All right, I'll try to keep this short. Uh, I'll save all my rants for class later. Okay. Good. Uh, but so in our current federalist system, like we rely, <laughs> we rely largely on intergovernmental management. And so we can think of like traditional environmental programs like the Clean Air Act. Well, what happens in the Clean Air Act is, even though it's a federal pro- uh, program, EPA sets broad national guidelines for air quality standards, and they set up these recommendations for how to implement programs. But then the states actually develop implementation plans. They're the ones who are doing the inspections and the regulations. They're the one who's doing all the work of this, right? 
that's largely how most programs in our government work. Like there are very few federal agencies that we'll call boots on the ground organizations. Um, and so a lot of this gets farmed out to state, local governments, even private or nonprofit actors. So there's not actually a lot of like implementation management capacity within our federal government. All of this gets pushed out to other agencies. That's caused some very interesting things, right? And one of it ends up being that most of our environmental management capacity ends up being at the state level. So, of course, states have used that and leveraged it to manage environmental programs, particularly as you see uh, conservative administrations pull back some of those programs, pull back fundings. There's a vacuum there. There's a power vacuum. And states have increasingly filled that through the 90s and 2000s. Well, what's happened in about the last decade, which is I find to be very interesting, our local governments are also increasingly filling that void. As we've seen this more polarization, we see progressive cities and conservative states. Um, you can think Texas, North Carolina, Georgia, all these places where Idaho, Idaho, Boise in the middle of Idaho mm-hmm. is a very progressive island in a very, very conservative place. And so all of these cities are seeing the lack of action at the state level. And they're like, well, you know what? We've got a lot of resources. We've got a lot of power. Why don't we do this ourselves? So they're sort of innovating their way towards addressing some of the issues we see with climate change. Yeah. And there's a lot of evidence to support that, not just climate change, but a lot of other things. But a lot of this research is focusing on climate change. And it was something that maybe 20, 30 years ago, a local government would go, well, that's really outside of our scope of interest. It's really not our mission. That's the state. Now they're going, well, if the state's not going to do it, we're going to do it. And they're getting aggressive with it. Um, and so, you're and we seeing- see that in Boise, right? The city of Boise Absolutely. set up 100% renewables target by 2030. Absolutely. And we're seeing that in a lot of local governments. We're seeing it in a lot of state governments. So as much as we talk about the things that are going on at the national and the international level, the things that are going on at the local level are much more interesting. I think the question that people have, people who are worried about climate change, have is are the is that going to be enough and i think that's the appeal of something like the green new deal don't you think Corey? is like the scope of this problem is so big and people sort of want like a new deal style approach or a manhattan project style approach where like we just put all of our resources towards really solving this problem right people refer to the green new deal as the as the moon landing right that that scale of of investment and innovation at the federal level but it looks exactly right. What you see is this network of of progressive cities who are signing on, learning from each other. Um, I think, you know, it's hard to imagine how you get to denting climate change through plastic bag bans and transit-oriented developments and uh, uh, building um, uh, development guidelines. But this is what cities are learning from each other, and we see adopting um, you know, and it, and it flows in a, a very interesting way, right? It's it's something innovates in Chicago, then it goes to San Francisco, then it goes to New York, and then it spreads. And it's sort of a similar pattern around each of these policy areas where you can see it spread. And in some places like, like Boise, Idaho, that spread is stalled by a legislature that then takes the power away from the local to be able to do some of those things. But that's sort of the, the give and take we see around the country. And I think it is that network of progressive, urban progressives saying, let's do something big at the national level. And that these efforts, while innovative and creative, are not going to, you know, you, you can't land on the moon with a archipelago of progressive <laughs> islands. So well right? put, yeah. But the moon landing and the Manhattan Project and all these things were never as polarized and partisanized, exactly right? right. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons we're seeing this happen at the local level is because these things are so political, right? And so there ha- I mean, action has to happen somewhere. I um, mean, it's a lot easier to make it happen at the local level and under the current state. I mean, at the end of the day, it's probably going we're going to need it at the local and national level. 
All right. Well, that's it for us today. We hope you have an amazing Valentine's Day and that you're ready for some extraordinary, lovely Valentine's themed slam poetry, because I think that's what's up next. Make sure you come back and join us again next Thursday at 4 p.m. here on Radio Boise for The Big Tent.